Welcome to the Natural Capital Podcast, produced as part of the Farm Advisory Service in association with the Scottish Government. My name's Rachel Smiley, and in this series we explore different natural capital assets and their value to Scottish agriculture and the rural economy, and the pressures and threats they face. We speak to people, groups and experts helping to manage, protect and restore these resources, ecosystems and habitats. In this episode of Natural Capital, we're on the beautiful island of Isla finding out about the unique habitats here and their important natural capital assets and how they are managed. In particular, we are discussing all things geese and conflicts and opportunities this creates for land managers. The Isla reserves are important for a range of bird species which depend on farming practices and land management to thrive. Here we discuss the challenges of balancing wildlife and agriculture. To do this, we are joined by Craig, Ian and Jack. Welcome to the Natural Capital Podcast. Do you want to just take it in turns to introduce yourselves? I'm Jack Fleming. I'm currently the Area Manager for ASPB Scotland, covering Argyll, Arran and Arran-Murkin, which is everything from Glenfinnan to Arran and from Tyree to the western boundary of the Loch Lomond National Park. That's a, a very large area. <laughs> um, Ian, do you want to go next? Hi, I'm Ian Brown, and I'm the farm manager here at Loch Grunyard. I've been here for 22 years now. Hello, I'm Craig Archibald. Uh, we farm the east side of Loch Grunyard, pretty much from one end to the other, and a wee bit further than that. Uh, it's a tenanted farm of Isle Estates. I came here in 1971 when I was one, so we've been there a wee while, so... And we've gone through all the different stages of farming from production to where we are now, which is a mixture of production and nature. Thank you. I'm looking forward to finding out more. Can we just start off with talking about the reserve? Jack and Ian, can you tell us a little bit more about it? Uh, so the, the RSPB bought the reserve from Isle Estate in 1984. Uh, the primary aim at that time was to create a refuge for barnacle geese. So the Greenland Barnacle Geese Company at Overwinter. And at that time, they were still being shot. And as far as the RSPB were concerned, the population was quite endangered. There was about 20,000 coming here at that time. Uh, and there was no safe place for them to go. Uh, the pressure on the island was obvious. Uh, so the society felt they ought to provide this refuge. And they did so by buying the farm of Gruner Farm and Burig. Interestingly, it was all about grass production. So at the time, they started off you know, with conservation bent, but to the credit they realised very quickly that they needed to have the agricultural systems in place to underpin what they wanted from the land in terms of conservation. So they started off with the reserve uh, trying with a few cattle of their own and we're trying to run it using graziers coming in seasonally to graze the grass and that just didn't work. With all due respect, people can't magic animals in and out. Uh, Generally, the population of animals is driven by what their own holding would be, so they could suddenly produce extra for somewhere to provide the grazing we needed. So another major departure from society, they decided to take this entirely in hand to buy their own suckler herd. And that's when they came looking for a farmer, and instead they got me. So I had been previously farming with my family in the Scottish borders, and I signed a three-year contract 38 years ago to set the system up here. As a farmer, and in particular with an interest in beef, handed the brief to build a 250-head suckler cow from scratch was irresistible. But to also deliver the conservation in that process uh, was an, well, an intriguing challenge. And it's still true today, I'm sure, as Ian will confirm. That's where we know it's an early start as a refuge. We branched out into a whole range of other 
whereby Putin will probably touch on later, but the primary driver was the geese. A three-year contract to 38 years is quite a leap. What was it that made you stay? Well, it got bitten by the bug, to be honest. I mean, it, it attracts farming, so we looked at buying another farm, we looked at renting another farm, and then I thought, you know, I want to do something else for a wee while, with every intention of returning back to the farm in Berwickshire. Coming over to work with RSPB, a big team with some very different challenges, it just gets under your skin a bit. Uh, and Isla helped in that regard as well. It's the kind of place that gets under your skin. It may not be for everybody, but if it gets a grip of you, it does not let go. So that would keep me going for a while. And I stumbled through, I was here for about nine years, then away for a while doing other jobs, managing the reserves in Dumfries and Galloway. And I then ended up head of advisory for Scotland for the MSPB, uh, based in Edinburgh. And then the chance to come back here in 2005 came up uh, just uh, as area manager. So I took that opportunity with both hands. Ian, how long have you been there? Well, I've been at the farm here for 22 years, but uh, I'm a native of Lake, so I've been here all my life. <laughs> so I worked for my uncle and aunt when I was younger on the farm, and then I went away to off the crew for two years, did my HND, and then I came back and I worked with my uncle again for a while, and then after that I set up self-employed, and I did a fence and a con- sheep, sheep shield contracting business, and then around about the time I started grazing sheep about RSPB reserves, it was about in the late 90s, the sheep market nosedived and the job came up here. And uh, I've known all the staff here for a long time, obviously, so I applied for the job and got it. So been here ever since. Met my wife and three children later, so, <laughs> so I'm still here. So in the time since Jack's uh, time, the, as he was explaining, the focus and the reserves changed a wee bit from geese. So it's also an important refuge for chuff, corn creek, and also breeding waders, particularly lapwing and red shank. So there's 200 pairs of lapwing down the flats, which is more than in the whole of Wales, I believe. We've also got hen harrier out in the hill too, and uh, curlew is assuming a, an increasing significance just with the status and as an endangered species in the rest of the country. So the management in the farm, there's about 4,300 acres in the, the whole reserve. Farmed area, if you like, within that, the grazed area is about 1,100 acres, and the farm itself about 630. So. The way that we manage it, we've got 200 suckler cows and 100 sheep. And the farm itself is run pretty conventionally, if you like, but it enables us to put cattle out onto the, the reserve areas, if you like, to do the grazing as and when required. I think Jack touched on it, that was the bit that was very difficult to do with grazers. For some of the areas, you just wouldn't put anything in. And we we're actually lucky yesterday, Craig came to our rescue and we bogged a tractor out of sight down in Money Road. A lot of the management on the, on the farm uh, involves grazing out rough areas, maybe in the, the autumn, and then topping them. Another departure from maybe normal agriculture would be we cut our silage late to start in the middle of August to suit the corn creek. And also on the flats down there, we don't have any access to the flats, which is a main silage area. It's an area of reclaimed seabed, and it's basically at sea level, and it's drained open ditches. Uh, so we don't really have any access to that right through the spring for the breeding waders, and then we'll cut silage on it later on, hopefully successfully, depending on the weather, it can be quite a, a, an operation at times. And that would be the main things. We grow some bird plots too, for twite and other farmland birds. But on top of our conservation, speaking about the bird plots, we've uh, changed things quite a bit. Carbon, obviously, uh, trying to cut our carbon emissions has, has come into the equation in the last few years. So we've started doing a lot of things like we've stopped ploughing, we're doing a lot more rotational grazing. What else have we got? Tried to reduce the size of the cattle and sheep. 
happily, most of that actually fits in with financial goals too. Actually, maybe I stated that at the beginning. Obviously, although the farm, you know, it's here to provide the conservation management first and foremost. After that, we do have a mission, if you like, to try and remain as profitable as possible and to make ourselves relevant to other people. So on that note, uh, I'll hand over to Craig. <laughs> <laughs> You'll tell us if we're relevant. <laughs> <laughs> To be fair, I have been I have been copying a few things that have been done over here, like rotational grazing and things like that, changing things slightly. I maybe look at my we farm fairly conventionally. I'm probably the rest of the farms pretty much conventional. We don't we're not in any environmental schemes now. You have to do stuff for them all the time. I can see stuff that needs to be done for nature, but I'm not willing to take away from some of my other goals of just trying to be profitable and keep an agricultural system. So we have 200-ish cows, 220-ish cows. Aberdeen Angus and we outwinter a lot more than we used to. Uh, used to be all, well, historically we were a dairy farm and a thousand sheep, and now we're 220 beef cows and a thousand sheep selling stores. Uh, we grow a wee bit of barley for the straw. Originally it's always for the straw, because you cart everything to Ireland, uh, but you can't cart straw because it's expensive. So we still do a wee bit of that. I guess it probably benefits to an extent the, the wildlife. We grow forage crops as well to fat lambs, which gives you a wee bit more diversity. Uh, we've changed a bit like Ian is to, well, Ian's going further again, but because of the goose schemes, we used to have to rotationally plough ground. So it was in the goose schemes where we were ploughing every acre on the farm so we could get the money back for the, the cost of the geese. But we've changed to overseeding and direct drilling and uh, subsoiling rather than turning the ground fully. A lot of the ground just isn't fit fit for that type of cultivation and we've we settled on our kind of 150 to 200 acres of decent ground as in a rotation of rape, two years barley, then five or six years grass for silage and then back to rape. Uh, so we're dabbling at doing that, even some of that without the plough. We have a lot of the same wildlife the RSPB have got one major one that we don't have that we used to have was corn creeks. We used to have a lot of corn creeks and that's kind of went when we stopped dairy farming because sheep graze to the very edges of every field and take all the wee bits where the corn creeks would normally nest. But there's no real schemes where you can actually fence off corners without having to then change your cutting dates and other management which affects your core farming business. So it's a shame that's gone but there's not much we can do about it. Well, we've just gone through our first year of being a monitor farm. We, we entered into, we didn't actually think we'd get get to be a monitor farm, but we, we entered into a monitor farm for our guile. I felt the island and the community needed something to kickstart. Everyone's kind of after lockdown, so the new generation learn about it. The old generation maybe get used to going back out to meetings discussing stuff, moving with the times. So we're maybe a wee bit ahead of the curve when it comes to comes to getting this information because in a lot of times the, that information goes to the kind of central areas where they can have meetings with lots of people and then we're last to get it. So I felt it would be quite a good idea to do that. And so far we've had good attendances to meetings. I hope we've something to do with, there's been other meetings and they've been fairly well attended as well from other people. So hopefully it's given people a wee bit more notion to learn and get out and socialise. And, and do you want to just explain what a monitor farm is? Uh, so a monitor farm 
basically we lay what we do on our farm out for everyone to see. It's quite in-depth, a lot of it's quite financial, so you have to be quite open about what you're doing. You also have to be quite open about you. maybe you're not doing it right. Maybe what you've always done isn't necessarily the right thing to do or the most profitable thing to do. So you can look a bit foolish at times maybe, but you've got to look at the bigger picture and hope at the end of it that you're going to be a more profitable farm or a happier farmer or more accepting of what you're doing. But at the same time, your neighbours are coming in, so they're looking at yours. So hopefully they're going back to look at their own businesses and they're thinking, what can I do? Should I change this or should I do that? Or they might go and look at, well, actually what we are doing is good. Maybe we should tell Craig what to do. But it might fit their farm. You know, it goes right through that. And hopefully from younger ones, it might give them a wee bit of a, of a notion of what to, to show that they're always learning, that sort of thing. Uh, and we were quite lucky because we have a couple of other, we have an oyster, but oyster business, we also opened a wee cafe. So for all they're seeing some of the business, they're not seeing all of the business. We've got a link to it so we can provide that in the show notes of the episode. Now we've mentioned the Goose Management Scheme. Who is a part of that and what is it? Well, the Goose Scheme was brought in, it's quite, so the early days, the, the pressure on Isle of Farmers was undeniable. The impact. So my early discussions when I came here in 1986 with Craig's dad, Tony, and a few other farmers uh, were interesting, to say the least. Uh, but from a farming background, it wasn't a big step to understand where these guys are coming from. So effectively, you have a bunch of farmers on Isla who are doing the Scottish government's job in protecting this species and getting nothing for it. There was no scheme or anything else to provide them for their out literally out-of-pocket expenses. It took quite a bit of wrangling, a lot of pressure from Craig's dad in particular and a few others to try and get some kind of scheme in place. And the original scheme was brought in to pay farmers to manage for geese. And the, the term is it's a management scheme and that's quite important. It's not to control or in any way interfere with them, but to recognise the actual cost. And it's one of the best schemes I've seen anywhere in terms of the costing process. It takes into account the impact on yield, the impact on turnout dates, the costs, the extra fuel, the extra reseeding and everything else. Even from the RSPV's point of view, this was an excellent solution. We've been very supportive of it, not every aspect of it. The basic premise of paying farmers to manage for geese was recognised and carried through. And it's been a, I think it's fair to say it's been a reasonable scheme. Yeah. Most of the way through, there's been a few wrinkles, a few bumps in the road, and there might be a few more to come. Almost <laughs> well, certainly a few more to come, because it's a, it's a big target for people to aim at under financial pressure. But it's, it's done a good job in recognising that Isla farmers support uh, an important population of geese. If there wasn't like the bumps in the road, then it wouldn't be constantly learning and improving the scheme. But what kind of actions, how do you manage for the geese? In the actual goose scheme, very hard to explain, but so, so we've gone from just getting paid per goose on the value of what a goose would eat. Then over the time we've worked out that actually some of the damage is more than just the kilos of grass the goose would eat. So they come, so they've already, well, I've grazed off the ground that I'm going to put my, my yows are going on to sheep uh, grass tomorrow. Now that grass has all been grazed by geese this week. And because a sheep only has a five-month gestation period, I'll get 20% less lambs 
percent less lambs up in this week than I would have if I'd gone a fortnight earlier. But if I went a fortnight earlier, I would be then lambing onto ground that's that bare, you couldn't sustain the sheep. So I go a fortnight later. So I'm hoping the geese leave early. It's a nice spring and there might be a nibble of grass. Or I could go two weeks later, I would have another 20% less lambs, but I would probably be lambing onto a wee nibble of grass because the geese would have left. So there's lots of costs in there that aren't necessarily just a straight amount of what the grass eats. Over time, we went through different schemes and then they paid us to grow grass and reseed more often. And then the way a goose takes so many years to breed and then it goes again. So each time we did this, five years later, we had 10,000 more geese. So, and then we did the same again and then brought more of the island and another 10,000 more geese and the same again. And then eventually we got to one particular winter. All our sheep were dying because they were starving. The geese were dying because they were starving. And the geese were in the silage pits eating. They were in the draft pits eating. They were in gardens. I've never seen anything like it. And at that point, we changed to what is probably one of the most controversial systems is adaptive management, which means we are lethally scaring. Is that the term? So it's where we, we scare geese off of their own grass, because if you look, if we look at the grass that's in the fields, that's actually their habitat. So if we leave the geese on there all the time, they paddle that grass, they kill that grass, and they come back next year, there's no grass. So what we do is we're allowed to lethally scare the geese, and that means they'll fly off. The grass will survive for the next winter, and then when they come back, there's more grass, and therefore it's a sustainable system, and they've got plenty of feed, but also because we scare off them first and second year reseeds, them fields will nearly always be half of our silage crop because we've protected the silage. So it's, it's allowing us to survive. It's also allowing them to survive. Uh, it's controversial because of it's killing geese, but as a management tool, we're never going to get rid of the geese and we hopefully the geese aren't going to get rid of us by doing that. I think, it, I think it's fair to say with the geese too, and it's worth bearing in mind talking about the scheme that it's the Greenland barnacle goose population that we're talking about, and there's over 90% wintering island now. But in the past, that's maybe not been the case. They're looking for a viable population of about 30 or 40,000 geese to actually keep the population stable. But in, you know, like hundreds of years ago, they'd have been spread from the South Island all the way to the Butter Lewis. And over the intervening period, they were shot out in all these areas. And we ended up, there was always only maybe about 5,000 in Islay, but the numbers increased here exponentially just with the intensification of agriculture. So we ended up in this situation where basically Isla is holding the tired Greenland barnacle goose population now. And that's why the goose scheme is important, if you see what I mean. But there is evidence now the geese are starting to spread again and go back to some of the more traditional goose sites, you know, off the island too. So. How many do you think visit the island? Well, the recent counts, uh, just a little early in the year compared to others, but broadly speaking, at the moment, we'll have 30,000 barnacle geese, we'll have about 5,000 Greenland white-fronting geese, and probably around 2,000 grey lag, which almost nobody's too concerned about, except for the numbers. Uh, so the grey lags tend to be around all year, which um, is not particularly welcome uh, by anybody, I don't think. It just queers a picture of them, but... What we're seeing now with colleagues out on Tyree and elsewhere, as Ian just said, we're seeing more barnacle geese on those islands now. 
Uh, the Outer Hebrides also have seen increases, but that introduces problems for them because they don't have access to any management scheme. So it's the same species spreading out. Uh, Ian's point about the, the population spreading out is true, but they almost all come to Isla first. So even the Irish birds land in here first and then they spread out. So even the birds that go to Tyree and to the Outer Hebrides come to Ireland. Uh, we've been able to track them and move them around to some birds with leg rings on to know which birds are where and when. Uh, we know where they were ringed uh, and we can keep a track of how they're moving around that way. So that spread is quite well documented. That was my next question. How do you monitor them? If you're saying there's 30,000, how do you count? Is it kind of done by photography and estimated that there's 30,000? What is? There are teams that go out, uh, they count the legs and divide by two, generally speaking. So it's a fairly simple mathematical process. They have regular counts throughout. There, there are national counts, which are the big formal ones, uh, but because of the management scheme here, there are intermediate counts as well. So we a couple of times a month throughout the winter period. Uh, Nature Scott oversee that uh, and they employ people who go out to count the geese and they pretty good coverage I would say of most of the island to find out where they were. That was particularly important when Craig was on about the early stages of the scheme where people were paid literally per goose. Obviously timing is everything so five minutes before the counter arrives there's a thousand geese in that field but when they arrive there's nothing. It's very difficult to get a grip off. So they try to get around that by having two consecutive days counts. And hopefully that round will even out. Everybody will get a turn. They also do a seven-year average. So that helps a bit. <laughs> because uh, some farms, like like my farm, there'll always be 3,000 geese on it. It doesn't matter what you do, there'll always be 3,000 geese on it. But there'll be other people, they spread out in January and February when it's hungry around here and they'll move to other places and they'll only be there on the morning or they'll move to the night. And also as we've got uh, a new thing, which is a sea eagle, we've also got them in bigger bunches all the time, which they wouldn't have by January, February, March even, they would all be into wee bunches spread out all over the island and then they'll be regularly counted. But now we've got them in big mobs that'll move constantly all the time. They're trying to convince Craig that his new best friend's a white tailed eagle. I haven't gone too far yet, <laughs> <laughs> but they certainly move the geese around differently, that's for sure. And we've had up to 17 white-tailed eagles sitting on the salt marsh at Grunier, which is quite a spectacle. And if anybody saw the wild owls footage, literally shot outside the office here, um, it's just it's spectacular, but it has changed the goose behaviour. Craig and I some sleepless nights. He said, two springs I go to before we started lambing, there's 17 seagulls, but fortunately they followed the geese away. <laughs> yeah. When the geese migrated, they did too. We've been, we've been very lucky so far. They come, they come in the autumn with the geese, and then they, they generally come just as the first lambs hit the ground. Not last year, the year before, when the bird flu stayed, and the geese stayed till later. I think at one point I had five white-tailed eagles bouncing around a year lambing and two golden eagles above. It's quite scary. Luckily, they didn't really understand. Obviously, they weren't ones that understood what the food was, food source was. They worked quite hard at lambing, just keeping them away until they disappeared. Uh, so luckily, we touch, touch wood, we've been very lucky. We've maybe lost a few lambs, but not many. Pieces, they've changed their habit. Over the years, I remember as a kid, they would always come by to Loch Green at night. Massive flocks coming down, it's quite a spectacle. Now they spread out and stay at different locks all over the island. And even when you're saying about geese coming into Ireland, my dad said a couple of years after they stopped a lot of the islands having sheep on, 
throughout the West Coast when they brought in dipping regulations. About four or five thousand extra geese arrived at that time, just because Isla had good grass and these islands then went rank and there wasn't places for them to eat. So it's a mixture of that and then numbers, I think the numbers peaked about 45, 47,000. The white front on top of that. Yeah, and there was white fronts on top of that. And then the bird flu's, presumably it's the bird flu that's taken them down over the last couple of years. And have you seen a dramatic decline in numbers since the bird flu? So we've not seen, so the Solway was massively impacted, sort of 30 odd percent, so it's 16,000 birds died on the Solway in one year from avian influenza. Um, but we've not seen that kind of dramatic drop here, but nevertheless, over the last few years, we've probably lost about 10,000 barnacle geese. We've not seen too many carcasses, but as Craig says, they, they've literally spread out over the whole island, so there'll be dead birds appearing, but we will never see them, and I've never found. We also had the eagles working on that time, so a, a bird that was weakened by bird flu is an easy prey for a white-tailed eagle. Uh, so it could be that the eagles were doing the geese a favour to some extent by potentially limiting the spread of bird flu by taking out the weak ones before it got too uh, virulent in the flock. So we've definitely lost geese, but it's very hard to get a figure on that. I think the, there's an international count due next week, uh, and we'll probably get a better handle on exactly how many are here at a broadly comparable time. And is the threat of bird flu, is that lowering or is it still a threat it's to bird flu? It's still present in the flock. Um, they took some blood samples last year, and certainly in the Solway, but in here, see most of the bugs they tested have bird flu antibodies. Well, that doesn't necessarily tell us as whether the birds will survive or if there's a variant strain coming through. We just don't know that. There was a variant strain in um, some Canada geese, which are more closely associated with the white fronts. But they took a different strain back down into America. And because of that interface between the species, we don't know if there's a different variant coming this way now too. There's nothing we can do about it. Just keep a watching brief and see what's happening. Try to understand the flock dynamics. But nevertheless, there are antibodies in the flock. It may suggest that they would survive an attack, even if it was a variant. Just want to touch on the reserve. What type of management are you doing there for the geese? Ian's touched on that cycle. So all the species Ian mentioned, so the geese, the waders, and um, the corn crake. So one of the biggest messages as a farmer coming in here to work for a conservation organisation, we have so many people, including bird watchers and conservationists who think they're looking at a natural habitat. They look at the moorlands, as is true for most of Scotland, they'll look at a moorland habitat and think it's natural, it's a wilderness. It's not. It's 5,000 years of human activity. If you stand and look at a Bronze Age hut circle around about, you can see the field systems there. So humans have a big impact on this landscape. In terms of the conservation interests that we most value, it almost all depends on agricultural activity. Might be, need to be tweaked a little bit. Some of the agricultural activity might be too extreme for the conservation, but nevertheless, it will depend on that. So, growing gra grass for the geese in my initial time when I came here, there's a massive reseeding program. Craig touched on that as part of the management scheme. We are excluded from the management scheme, but we nevertheless had a duty to try and hold as many geese as we possibly could. That's why we were here. So, there were really intense standard grass seed mix going in, uh, loads of ryegrass, loads of clover, so five kilos of clover a hectare, which is way up there, just to try and get good quality grass in front of geese. It was a bit of a mind shift for a beef farmer, <laughs> effectively, but the principles are exactly the same. So the same fertilizer, timing, 
length of swap and everything else was as tight as it needed to be. So we were strictly focused on the geese initially, but as Ian says, once the, the scheme particularly came in and farmers were being paid for management as well, that allowed the society to spread the interest a little bit to the other species of concern to us. And there used to be 300 pairs of lapping on the flats, so even here we've seen a change. The lapping used to nest on other farm around about, and they've now pretty much drawn into the flats ground. And it is fascinating stuff. I mean, that was reclaimed in the mid-1800s. As you were saying, a sea wall created there with 300 hectares of low grassland and raised bog out there, dependent on that sea wall. It's highly designated. It's a site of special scientific interest. It's a special protected area. It's a Ramsar site. And that's because primarily of the geese and the waders. Uh, and to have these species out there in the spring, when uh, Craig very well described how bare those fields are, by virtue of the geese, that literally you're looking at mud rather than grass and a couple of wisps sticking up. Well, that's perfect for the lapwing coming in. That's exactly what they want to see. So they move in there, the grass grows a little bit. Ian has the delight of chucking muck in these concrete corridors to grow nettles, would you believe? That's a bit of a departure for Harmon as well, but the concrete move in there. And he's touched on the, the curlew, so a little bit of light grazing, targeted grazing with 20 pairs of curlew on the reserve, which is remarkable as well. But again, they all benefit from that agricultural activity, so it's quite cyclical. You know, cut his silage, it's been lightly fertilised nowadays, if at all in some cases. Uh, and that the grass is back there for the geese coming in at the back end of the year. So it just follows around the natural farming system, a few tweaks in there and a different target, a very different crop, if you like, what's going on that. We used to graze the, the moorland blocks, which were quite significant. Uh, we used to winter the cows out there for quite a number of months. But because of the hen harrier, uh, depending on deep heather, that was detrimental. So we now don't do that. There were a few sacrificial areas for either put the suckler cows for a while in the winter. But we don't graze those uh, moorland blocks. And a couple of years back now, we had six pairs of hen harrier on the reserve, which fled 24 chicks, which is amazing. That's probably more than the whole of England on one site. So we'll talk about uh, the reserve as such as a complex site that goes from intertidal mudflats to heather moorland within a kilometre and a half, and through all the habitats in between. So it's really, it's a very special place. Uh, Craig has literally the mirror image on the other side of the loch. Uh, so it's, it's just, from my point of view, uh, there's a lot of added interest there. From a farming point of view, it's absolutely integral to what we want to deliver on the conservation side. And you might have touched this already, but are there trade-offs from the farm in, in terms for the geese? Those are things that you just definitely cannot do. Like, is there a downside of having so many geese? Well, Craig's touched on it. I suppose both of us will say, I'll, I'll go quickly and just say, I mean, a big impact on sheep in particular, because you have to tuck so late until grass in the spring, so there's a huge impact then. Cattle as well, like we'll not have grass here, the earliest it's ever been is about the 20th of May. You know, so there's an impact on carbon dates and whatnot. I mean, you'd reasonably expect to be grazing cattle here by the middle of April, possibly, you know, if there wasn't geese. Obviously, reseeds don't last as long, uh, three years or maybe a maximum in a reseed, which is one of the reasons we've stopped reseeding so much. Obviously, we weren't getting any financial recompense for it. And then silage, uh, the concrete silage, I mean, our silage is, I mean, it's rubbish, basically, you know, it'll be a 59D value, 60D value. The only thing that offsets it is the draft, drafts and plentiful supply. And that's been one of the reasons in the last few years we've cut down on the fertiliser, made less silage and used more draft. We're quite fortunate now to do that. 
don't know, this that is your your sheep, your is your cost, your feeding is your extra feeding cost, your extra feeding costs, your probably your stocking density on your entire farm is probably maybe not half, but your production is 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 one of the things that we came up with in the monitor farm was just our sheep are very unproductive and very expensive. Our cattle, because we've managed to get a system where we can outwinter, we're lucky we've got the whole length of the farm and we've got dunes and stuff at the far end, and some dry ground where we're outwintering cows, but I mean that's a trade-off again because that's, that's sheep winter grazing, so that's find somewhere else from the sheep, so it's, you reduce your sheep slightly and like you say, the, the grazing, well our reseeds are lasting because we are, we're allowed to scare, so the Certain fields will still be decimated after a year or two because we can't keep geese off them. They'll night feed, they'll come in in any weather. Okay, so the certain fields that a receipt does only last two, three years, even with protection. But even if you take that where we are protecting, if you've got to go around three times a day scaring geese off, it's a cost. It's all, it's all a cost. It's, it's part of your life and the constant tinnitus all winter of listening to geese. I think the short answer, Rachel, is it's a button. <laughs> <laughs> I can I can fully I can fully this this times of it. There was one year I think they all came. They didn't come till something like the twentieth of October, and I think we had fifty or sixty thousand geese arrive, and I could fully appreciate the spectacle. It was an amazing spectacle, but the difference that winter was they just cleared all the grass in the place in a week. I think my lambing percentage was 70% the next year. And luckily, we're now down to 30,000 uh, 30, geese. I would take 20,000 geese, but at 30,000 geese, you can manage the grazing. We still have a wee bit nibble now. I don't have to feed my ewe lambs this winter. I won't have to feed my ewe lambs probably till into January. You know, these are the things, the small things, small wins. But that's no different. It, it makes my climate more like a health farm and... The Kim Gomes maybe now, but you know it's but where we are, the climates we should be the opposite way. We should be grazing well through the winter and lambing onto grass and calving onto grass. That would be nice. We calve in sheds and then we put the calves out, cows and calves out onto bare fields. And the calves where they should be nibbling from day one, we bits of grass, they're nibbling it. A bit of hay that we stick in the ground and that's it. And the, the cows are getting fed probably into June before we let them out to proper grazing and it, it's all extra. It's not just the cost, it's stress on, it makes your entire year longer. There's nothing better than letting your cows out on the grass and that's you, you don't have to feed them tomorrow. But we don't do, well, it should be maybe middle of April, it's quite often middle of June. It's, it's not good for stock. If I could just make one last comment about cows, they're actually Converse to what you read in the press and everyone's wanting a reduction in cattle, you know, because of methane and carbon emissions in, but and certainly in this part of the world, cattle are fundamental to the, you know, the conservation. Most of the bird species here have evolved alongside, you know, cattle grazing. And we're actually in a situation now where there'll be less cattle grazing about this island anyway than there has been in the last maybe 300, 400 years. You know, so, aye, as Craig says, cows and people is what's required in, in this part of the world anyway. With them such high numbers of geese, what is the tourism like to the island? Is it quite high? I know, Craig, you said you had 
a, a shop and was an oyster farm as well. Is that the high tourism numbers like helping that side of your business? Well, we have an oyster farm and we cafe we just opened last year. I would think the pub tourism this winter has been pretty poor. It could just be a ferry issue. I don't really know what's going on. Everything's tailed off very quick. If you go back six or seven years ago, when we brought in the adaptive management plan to manage goose numbers, there was a big hoo-ha that we were going to kill every goose in the country. And we never seen as many bird watchers for the next two or three years that were coming to see them before we killed them all. And I think they realised we had not going to kill them all. And then they can probably go to the Solway a bit cheaper at the moment than they can come here. Well, certainly more reliably. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you would see that yesterday yourself. It's quite quite an achievement, either getting off or on either at the yeah. moment. <laughs> so I think um, Craig's right that the, it does fluctuate quite a bit, but the um, Isla probably is a year-round, almost year-round tourism thing. But it's not all driven by geese. You may have heard about the distilleries, so they bring a lot of people in too. Uh, but wildlife tourism definitely exists. There's the uh, constant refrain of bird water parked right in the middle of single track roads and the rest will follow us around. Uh, they definitely come to see the geese. They definitely come to try and find the white-tailed eagles and the rest. But the issue with that is that the, the money that they bring to the island does not necessarily end up in the pockets of the farmers who are impacted by looking after these species. And that's something that should be recognised. It's all very well saying that it's, all, it's a great benefit having that tourism, well it is for some, and I speak as somebody who runs a bed and breakfast. But it doesn't necessarily spread out to the whole island. When you're moving cows along the road in the summer and there's about 15 cars beneath the ditch and you, <laughs> you struggle to see the benefits of tourism. <laughs> Isla's quite a complex island, so there's a fault line runs right through the middle of it, right under my house, in fact. It's an offshoot of the Highland Fault Line, all the way down, runs down to Ireland. It's geologically complex, so we have our colleagues on the, the O have the benefit of some lime outcrops down there. There's one lime kilns down there too. Uh, so there's a, a vast variety of habitat and farming challenges that we have. So we've described the Greenhill Flats, a reclaimed area full of silts and clays. And Craig was talking about how difficult it can be to manage. It was a bit of a shock coming from Berwickshire land, quite heavy clay. Uh, to what I thought would be a West Coast kind of sandy light kind of stuff, and it isn't. If you get the timing wrong on that, it breaks break hard. You have moorland areas round about, which can be spectacular. And in terms of looking at greening things up, there are huge areas of peatland that could be um, re-wetted and do a good job for carbon. There's some studies looking at the potential of that. Some of the other estates are looking at that too. But from a tourist point of view, there's something different around almost every corner. You've got sea cliffs down the O, you've got old woodland and rocky coves up the east side, you've got big beaches and sand dune systems out on the west side. That brings people back year after year. And I think I go back to an earlier comment about people in the landscape. So rewilding is a big thing at the moment. It's not well understood, and dare I say, even by some people that are trying to rewild. Uh, it's just not, if you take the people out of the landscape, you'll have something else and it might be different. There'd be nothing like as diverse. And to have active management of the land is important for a huge range of conservation interests. And it's really important to understand that. And I don't think there's a better example of that than I know. I think it's fair to say, as a local, that in the last 30 years, 
a huge change in this island though it's gone from being an agricultural fishing island with some distilling to whiskey disneyland now and there's also been a corresponding change in the local population there's less locals so island's actual character and culture has changed dramatically in 20 years and whether that's a good or bad i'll leave that for others to decide but my own views on it <laughs> <laughs> It might be a common view in this room. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I would, I would say that we need, we need to keep Isla, Isla, mm -hmm. and I think we have to keep doing community things. And if people are moving here, we have to make them Isla people, and not let Isla change. I mean, there is changes in in the years. I mean, you're talking about all the, all your different bird species and things. You've got ones like your sea eagles coming in. We've got ospreys now. Everything and even from global warming's making it the amount of water we get now compared to where we were, downpours, we're having to find different ways to farm. But with nature, we can't do the nature stuff we're doing without the people on the ground. So we need the farmers and the people that are going to deliver it. If you can keep farmers farming, mixed farming in the west coast, you will have habitat. We don't necessarily need to change an awful lot of what we're doing, we just need to keep people out there, preferably smaller, more mixed farms. Thanks a lot for coming on today. Certainly learned a lot and it's covered quite a lot of topics that we have previously discussed on the Natural Capital podcast. If you want to find out more on everything we have discussed, you can find links in the show notes and more information is on the Farm Advisory Service website. You can listen to all of the podcasts we produce for Fast Sounds on all podcast providers or wherever you're listening to this one, such as Agriculture with Mary Jane or Stop Talk with Robert. You can also listen back to previous episodes and access a wide variety of other resources on the Fast Sounds pages and Farm Advisory Service website. We hope you'll join us for the next episode of Natural Capital. Thanks for listening. The Farm Advisory Service Podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government.